it's possible that Bitcoin death spirals like post flipping and like literally just they all give up. The, the narrative is dead. In fact, it's probably like my base case, but I don't, I mean, I don't necessarily like to say that super loudly because people are upset. The Web3 Trenches podcast with your hosts, KH and Web3 Dev. Welcome to the front lines of Web3, where every week we bring you all the most exciting and relevant developments. All of Web3 with none of the BS. None of the following is financial or any other kind of advice. So let's get knee deep. BlackRock is the world's largest investment management firm with over $9 trillion in assets under management. They filed an application for a spot ETF, which essentially triggered a face-melting pump. <laughs> and not only that, they also triggered a wave of other institutional um, applications for it. So yeah, we're in for a, a wild ride, my friends. Um, so... In line with this, let's let's play a little game of how it started and how it's going. So Larry Fink, BlackRock CEO, how it started. He said that Bitcoin just shows how much demand there is for money laundering. And he said that Bitcoin is an index for money, money laundering. And that's all it is. How it's going. He said in late 2022 that tokenization is the next generation for markets. And BlackRock applied for a Bitcoin ETF last week, which would allow its customers to invest in Bitcoin. Ken Griffith, founder of Citadel. How it started? He called crypto a jihadist call against the dollar and he wished young people would use the energy to make the dollar stronger instead. Calling crypto owners stupid. How it's going? He called crypto one of the greatest finance stories over the last 15 years. And his company co-launched a new crypto exchange last week with Fidelity and Charles Schwab. Walt Bettinger, CEO of Charles Schwab. How it started? In 2021, he was looking cautiously and closely at the crypto market. He was waiting for regulatory clarity. And if it came, the company would be a player in the space and disruptive. How it's going? He just co-launched a new crypto exchange last week. Oh, yes. And last week, Jay Powell even said that Bitcoin or crypto appears to have some staying power. And the Fed sees stablecoins as a form of money. What an interesting plot twist. Dude, crazy what a week does. Everyone is celebrating the face-melting pump. Yeah, that's so nice as well. But I think what, what is actually happening, like while while crypto-native exchanges are being sued by uh, SEC, you know, the incumbents are probably getting ETF and launching new exchanges. So it really seems like, you know, Gary's friends are going into crypto just as the crypto-natives are getting, you know, wrecked by the regulators. Look, I, I think that the timing is too eerily coincidental the biggest financial institutions you got them talking about launching exchanges and shit so i'm not i'm not actually happy about this like yeah it's all nice prices you know it's going to go up but like when these tradfi institutions getting involved that means more regulation that means more scrutiny that means more kind of you know capturing of crypto by the governments so i'm not actually yes. super happy about this and also it means you know crypto is like one of the few technologies where the normies uh, had a chance to get in before the institutions but like you know this has been a meme for for years if this doesn't mean the institutions are in, then I don't know what else does. So I, so I think you're I'm right. Not, no, definitely. I'm kind of not celebrating this much at all. Yeah, I, I'm with you. Mixed feelings. Wait, do, you, do you remember our old friend BTFP? Well, uh, I mean, it's not so much in the new cycle as, as it used to be. Remember when the Fed said it would only be 25 billion and, and they wouldn't need to use it? Well, so much for that because it's past 100 billion already and we're just getting started. <laughs> Hashtag Balaji was right. So that's it for the news for the week. So let's move on to our segment on demystifying crypto. 
this week we're going to be talking about uh, zero-knowledge proofs. You know, it's been all the hype for a couple of years. So zero-knowledge proofs were first conceived in 1985 by Shafi Goldwasser, Silvio Micali, and Charles Rakov. Uh, Silvio Micali's <laughs> In a paper, Knowledge Complexity of Interactive Proof Systems. Uh, this paper introduced interactive... <laughs> This paper introduced interactive proof systems and conceived the concept of knowledge complexity, a measurement of the amount of knowledge about the proof transferred from the prover to the verifier. Later, they proved given the existence of unbreakable encryption, one can create zero-knowledge proof system for any MP-complete graph coloring problem with three colors. This has monumental implication. To understand why, we need to talk about P versus MP. Have you heard about Millennium Prize? Millennium Prize. In the year 2000, they created a list of several mathematical problems. Mm -hmm. If you can solve any of these problems, you can claim $1 million. Examples are like Riemann hypothesis as well as P versus MP. So the context is, this is literally the smartest people alive weren't able to solve this problem, right? So what is P? P is the class of problems that you can solve in polynomial time. For example, sorting. If you have an array of n elements and you want to sort it, it will take time t, right? But if you make that array n plus one elements, it will not take t to the power of n. Complexity doesn't, doesn't grow exponentially. Depending on a sorting algorithm, you can do it even in log of n or n log of n, okay? It's not going to grow exponentially harder as you add more elements. So, so the problem is when it becomes like two to the power of n as you add, you know, n elements. For example, Sudoku, it's like a nine by nine grid, right? Mm -hmm. But as you make the grid bigger and bigger, the, the, the complexity to solve this, the, com you know, the, the computational time you need to solve it grows like exponentially, it explodes, yeah, okay? Makes sense. So, so the P are the ones that, that it's easy to compute. Those are the P problems. MP is a class of problems that can't be solved in polynomial time. That is to say, it cannot be computed easily, but you can verify the solution in a polynomial time. That means it's easy to verify, but hard to compute. Oh, I see. Okay? okay, okay. You don't have to be like a classical music composer to appreciate mass in B minor. Mm. Tangent within the tangent. You know when they launched Voyager 1 and 2 to be discovered by the alien civilizations? That's, that's where they made that little uh, disc with our DNA and like some sounds and they just shipped it into, into space. Is that, is that what? That's exactly what it is. Mm. That disc was showing off various assets of human achievement. And there was, a, there was a committee of professors to decide what piece of music to include. One of the professors said, this is obvious, mass in B minor. No other reply. That would be showing it off. back on track. Okay. Mind-blowing parties, it turns out all MP problems can be turned into graph coloring problems. This includes Sudoku, protein folding, ECDSA signature verification. In, in fact, every mathematical proposition, okay, this is not a mind-blowing thing. Mm. Every mathematical proposition that has a proof, it also has zero-knowledge proof. Mm. Unsurprisingly, they were awarded Turing Award, uh, which is like Nobel Prize for computer science. I don't know, did you, did you actually understand me, like what I was saying? So basically, they, they, they proved that three-coloring graph problem, which is like imagine a map, okay, 
and then you have to fill you have to fill all the all the states with three colors such that no two colors are next to each other. Okay, that's the graph coloring math problem. Okay, and all these MP problems. Are you with me? Kind of, but not really. It's like concepts okay, so I've in, never okay, heard okay. of before, you know, so it's difficult to kind of grasp. Yeah. Would I actually prove every mathematical proposition that has a proof can also have zero knowledge proof? Why, why is it mind blowing? You understand once we actually understand what the zero knowledge proofs are. Okay. okay. So, zero knowledge proof is a, is a method by which one party, the prover, mm -hmm. okay, can uh, prove to another party, the verifier, mm -hmm. that a given statement is true while the prover avoids conveying any additional information apart from the fact that the statement is indeed true. The kind of most common example people use, imagine you are a colorblind, mm -hmm. okay? And, and, I, and I give you two balls and I tell you, hey, these balls have different color. But you cannot believe me, like, yeah. I might be lying to you, right? How do you know? Maybe they are both red, yeah. maybe they are both blue, okay. you know? So I tell you, like, look, take these balls, put them behind your back, and either switch them or don't switch them. I don't know if you switch them or not, right? Then you show me the balls. And I, and I can tell you whether you switch them or not because I know the colors, yeah. I can see the yeah. colors, right? The first time I might have just gotten lucky, but if you do this number yes. of times, okay, I get you, you are virtually certain, yeah. oh, they're actually different colors yeah, yeah, and yeah, I can yeah, tell yeah. them apart, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure, okay. Zero knowledge proofs have three properties. Completeness. If the statement is true, honest verifier will be convinced of this fact by the honest prover. Soundness. If the statement is false, no cheating prover can convince honest verifier that this is true. Hmm. Zero knowledge. If statement is true, no verifier learns anything other than the fact that the statement is true. There are many different types of applications for ZK proofs. Uh, for example, ring signatures used by Zcash and Monero. You can imagine the future where you can uh, prove anything while remaining private. You, you, you could prove that you have driving license or that you are a citizen of the country while not revealing your name. Right? You can just prove the fact. They don't need to know. They don't need to see your passport. You can just prove, hey, I have a passport. Mm. It's pretty cool if you care about yeah. privacy, if you ask me. No, sure. <laughs> there are many systems uh, people have been building for past couple of years. You, you had Starknet. They are working on scalable, transparent arguments of knowledge, which is Stark. That's why they call Starknet, right? Scalable, transparent. Right? There are VPDs, Snarks. But the past couple of years, Snarks have been all the rage. I think it's what the ZK Sync, Polygon, and Modules are using. Cool. I should say this is very frontier of cryptography, like bleeding edge. Mm. So let's talk, about, let's talk about ZK Snarks. But again, this is just one type. There is just so much happening in the field. But ZK Snarks are the ones that are older age. So ZK Snarks is zero knowledge, succinct, non-interactive argument of knowledge. ZK Snark. Now, this is where the things get hairy. Is this where they get hairy? <laughs> <laughs> Just to give you some sense how this actually works, you know, imagine finite field F defined as a set of integers from, from zero to P minus one, where P is a prime. Okay, so it's just a set of integers up to the P minus one, and the P is a prime number. And all the addition and multiplication is done module P. Now, let's create arithmetic circuit. It takes N elements from the field and produces one element as a result. For those with computer science background, circuit is just a directed acyclic graph where internal nodes are labeled as plus, minus, or multiply. It defines n-variate polynomial alongside the particular recipe, how to evaluate it. Really, only important takeaway from this part is think of those internal nodes as addition, subtraction, multiplication, as gates. You know, like transistors on CPUs have gates? They define the size of the circuit. This is relevant when we want to write the proofs to the chain. One more takeaway from this section, actually, you can create these circuits for almost anything you'd want in blockchain space. For example, you could have a hash verifier circuit that, that takes a hash and a message as input, 
it hashes the message and subtracts the hash from the input. If the result is zero, then you verify the hash of the message. It takes about 20,000 gates to do this. Uh, you can also create ECDSA signature circuits, you know, and so on. Now let's talk about argument systems, the AR part of SNARK. Argument systems consist of, of prover and verifier. Prover has two inputs, public statement it is trying to prove, let's call it X, and a private witness, let's call it W. Verifier only has the statement X as an input. What Prover is trying to do is to convince the verifier there exists some witness such that X and W result in zero. So circuit is C with input X and W equals zero. Keep in mind the verifier doesn't know the W. Verifier is going to send number of challenges to Prover and then checks the responses and based on those decides whether, the, whether to accept or reject the proof. There are two types of argument systems, interactive and non-interactive. Interactive means there is number of rounds of messages between the prover and the verifier, right? When it comes to rollups, we care about non-interactive. We want to be able to write, you know, short proof to chain. They also need to be very fast so that nodes can verify them easily. And if the, if the, if the proof is succinct and non-interactive, we call it snark, right? Mm, succinct, yes, non-interactive yes, yes, yes. Uh, argument, argument uh, of knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> and here's an, here another mind-blowing part, all right? Uh, verifier runs faster than it takes to read the circuit actually is, is a log of number of gates. Like how can, how can it do this, right? Okay, Im imagine you have yeah. some program that does something. Imagine it ex executes faster than it takes computer to load this oh. program into the, into the oh. memory. Okay, that's that's another, another mind blowing part, right? There is this, so, so, so this, was a, this, this was a big problem with the zero knowledge. It's just, they just take too long, too much computation to, to be practical, right? So what people have been doing past couple of years, that there's this pre-processing step uh, that creates inputs for prover and verifier. And one of the inputs is a short summary of the circuit. So then the verifier doesn't need to have like the whole circuit, it just has a short, short summary of the circuit. That's why we need this setup procedure. But this creates problem, right? There, there are a number of different types of problems. It, there was a trust, the computation was too long, it was on universal. After much blood, sweat and work, a couple of years ago, there was like a uni universal system with no trusted setup and they can ver verify any, any, any proofs. Huge, this was, yeah. again, this was a huge, this was a huge breakthrough. And this is what fueled all the excitement uh, over the past couple of years. And what, what you know, what enabled uh, ZK layer twos to exist at all. But just think about it. Like I can prove to you something, it's true. Bro, it's mind blasting. I was sitting here and my eyes kind of like glazed trying to like figure this out like, whoa. <laughs> it's kind of like magic, except it's just beautiful math. For our cypherpunk segment, today we talk about Claude Shannon. Today we are talking about 10 to the negative 9 ether, or as most people know it, Quay. Also named Shannon. Claude grew up in his tiny, tiny town in Michigan. And at 9 years old, he created a private barbed wire telegraph to his neighbor. He went on to study mathematics and electronics. He worked on an analog computer that could solve differential equations with the complexity outside of the ability of any human. So during World War II, he worked for the National Defense. He published a number of papers on cryptography and mathematically he proved one time pad is unbreakable. On episode 9, Speed Run Through History of Cryptography, we talked about the large books with passwords that could only be used once. Those were a result of his work. In 1984, he published A Mathematical Theory of Communication. This work focuses on the problem of how to best encode the message a sender wants to transmit. Shannon developed information entropy as a measure of the information content in a message, 
which is a measure of uncertainty reduced by the message. In doing so, he essentially invented the field of information theory. Crazy. <laughs> Communication theory of secrecy systems, a declassified version of his wartime work on the mathematical theory of cryptography, in which he proved that all theoretically unbreakable ciphers must have the same requirements as the one-time pad. He's also credited with the introduction of sampling theory, which is concerned with representing a continuous time signal from a uniform, discrete set of samples. This theory was essential in enabling telecommunications to move from analog to digital transmission systems in the 1960s and later. He made a fortune trading stocks as a side hobby. I mean, in fact, only one firm with a better trading record than him during that entire time. 27% return over 25 years. This, this is ridiculous. I don't think even Renaissance Technologies does that much, like year over year. Crazy. He was a man immune to scientific fashion and insulated from opinion of all kinds, on all subjects, even himself, but especially himself. A man of closed doors and long silences, who thought his best thoughts in Spartan bachelor apartments and empty office buildings. He never argued his ideas. If people didn't believe them, he ignored those people. He could neither explain himself to others, nor did he care to. In his work life, he preferred solitude and kept his professional associations to a minimum. What can we learn from Claude Shannon? Shannon's body of work is a useful corrective to our era of unprecedented specialization. His work is wide-ranging in the best sense, and perhaps more than any 20th century intellect of comparable stature. He resists easy categorization. Was he a mathematician? Yes. Was he an engineer? Yes. Was he a juggler, unicyclist, machinist, futurist and gambler? Yes. Computer scientist? cryptographer and the father of information theory? He simply went wherever his curiosity led him. Ed Thorpe once said, Claude Shannon was to information and communication what Newton was to physics. Dude, that's huge. <laughs> Shannon wanted to become a pilot. The flight instructor wrote a letter to the president at MIT saying, I'm convinced that Shannon is not only unusual, but is in fact a near genius of the most unusual promise. With the president's permission, he would ban Shannon from the cockpit. <laughs> Such a life wasn't worth risking in a crash. That's huge. What a guy. Yeah, but th this oh is like gosh. Shannon, he met uh, one Neumann. He, he, he also met Einstein and Godel at Princeton. He, he worked at Bell Labs where Alan Turing went to meet him. Uh, Turing showed him the universal Turing machines uh, paper before it was published. The, the Turing machines is theoretical underpinning of like how computers work to this day. Yeah. And then yeah. Every single computer to this day has a Von Neumann architecture. Okay, so Von <laughs> Neumann. Oh my God, Von Neumann. You know, like Tony Stark. Like they say, Elon Musk is Tony Stark. Like yeah. John Von Neumann is Tony Stark. Like he was like off the charts genius. He was like a ladies' man. He he he, he, he did breakthroughs in physics, in com on computer science, in mathematics. Like off the charts, like titanic intellect. And also like Ed Thorpe. Uh, and they, they also co-invented variable, they are created with co-inventional variable computer with Ed Thorpe. And you probably saw, saw that movie 21, when people counting cards and they win money in blackjack. Yes. That, yeah. That's Ed Thorpe, that's Ed Thorpe. And then he, yeah. went on, he went on to create like one of the most successful, successful hedge funds in history. So like, <laughs> you had just so many, do you know who is Godel? Mm -mm, no. So Godel created this, this thing, incompleteness theorem. 
he proved within any system of axioms there are things that are true, but you can't prove them. Okay, this is like shattering the beauty of mathematics. A mathematician thought that you know mathematics is complete, but he proved there are things that are true and you can't prove it in axioms. So fascinating. When, when Einstein ask, uh, was asked, what was he thinking about God? Well, he said he's not a very nice man because like, he shattered this, he shattered this illusion of mathematics being you know, perfect. <laughs> and, then he, and then he was such a titan, titanic intellect and, and polymath and renaissance man. It was very hard to construct this to like a digestible story. Like every character there, like the, the, the Newman, Turing, Einstein, freaking Ed Thorpe, like we should, do, we should do a founder story and we will on every one of them. Like the stories are wild. Crazy. Well, as far as Claude Shannon, sir, we salute you. Thank you for your service. And speaking of cypherpunks and galaxy brains, I know you spoke to a heavyweight this week. He done some mankless, one day being feckless. He triggers Maxis much with his supply inflation stats. From Ethereum wing of Ethereum community, with his newsletter giving us an opportunity to keep up and to make sense of this crypto mess. Builder, Gigachat, Evan Van Ness. What are you focusing on the most these days? Yeah, well, um, there's, a, there's some stuff I haven't announced that I'm sort of working on. Uh, I'm trying to take myself out of the complain on Twitter phase of my life and into the, you know, actually found things that, you know, make a difference. And so there's some symbiosis with the things I complain about on Twitter. <laughs> um, so one thing is I'm planning on doing a sort of a, a staking pool. A guy I've known for a little over a year, he was early in one of the, uh, maybe even first employee um, in uh, one of the Latin American unicorns called Mercado Libre, which is sort of like eBay for Spanish speaking, maybe Portuguese speaking too. Um, it's it's massive in, in Argentina. It's literally like, uh, imagine it was Amazon and eBay combined, right? Like that's like more like what it is in Argentina. Like, you know, they have, they have local delivery and like almost everything that you buy online, like you buy it from Mercado Libre. Uh, so he was early there. He did DevOps there. Um, and he, uh, basically we've been talking about this for a while and how there's so little, you know, good staking pools. And so, you know, that's one thing we're working on is, you know, um, getting this staking pool that is like, you know, just decent, right? Because it's been a long time of, of staking, of ETH staking, right? I mean, we're, we're on two and a half years now, like launched in December, 2020. And, you know, I don't know, most of the staking pools just aren't very good. So uh, that's one thing I'm working on, you know, hopefully we can get some stake and, uh, you know, sort of like reduce the Lido dominance also reduce some of the problems with um, majority clients. And also it'll be run on Latin, Latin American data centers um, because uh, Rodrigo also, uh, after he left Mercado Libre, he had a, a cloud business. Um, so he knows all the data centers throughout Latin America, like he's friends with the people that operate them. So, you know, he can basically get, you know, cheap compute cycles um, and, you know, so we're going to, and, and by the way, there's, there, you know, that's, I, I talk about like the fact that it'll be relatively non-custodial, the fact that it'll run minority clients, but actually the fact that it's like running on in Latin America is arguably the biggest advantage of all, because like our geographic diversity in Ethereum is not very good. It's really almost all in, you know, US and Europe, you know, with like some in China, um, 
you know, it's relatively, I mean, obviously like there's a long tail, so I don't, I don't want to over-exaggerate, but there's not very much in Latin America. It's just like a great market to have a bunch of stakers in. So that's the plan. Um, you know, I can talk more about the architecture. Um, maybe we can get into that later. Um, that's one thing. Um, I'm also probably going to start a podcast. You know, I've been complaining about some of the Ethereum podcasters. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, I, I think some of them have really lost their way. Uh, some of them haven't, but, uh, you know, you know, I don't know. You don't always have to like grab for every single dollar out there. Like it's okay to actually, uh, you know, focus on, you know, just Ethereum stuff. Um, and, uh, there's a third thing I was working on and I forget what it is now. Oops. Uh, a, a little, a little, little, little no newsletter perhaps. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Andrew really, really maintains the day to day of that. Um, uh, I probably still spend more time on it than I should, or than I need to. Mostly what I do is on Friday, like we ship it on Friday night in America. So Saturday morning in Australia where he is. And most of what I do is I sort of like, uh, update his copy to be a little bit more, I don't know, his copy can be a little dry. I, I think he'd be fine with me saying that. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's good to be descriptive, but it's also good to like, you know, make sure it's like, uh, you know, entertaining, interesting as well, right? So yeah, there's the newsletter. Uh, I swear there was a third thing I was doing. The, uh, the, the governor of Texas, when he ran for president, uh, there was a debate, uh, you know, and he said, and I'm gonna do three things. I'm gonna end the Department of Energy. I'm gonna end the Department of Education and Oops. Uh, we'll, we'll say that's it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's definitely not it. But uh, whoever I'm partnering with on this third thing is going to be mad at me. But mate, I, I'm genuinely excited to hear about you trying to set up a validating service in, in South America. Are you going to focus on like one country, like Argentina? Or do you want to diversify in South America as well? Because I, I think this is up, this is so badly needed. Like we, we definitely need Lido and Rocket Pool competitors. The more, the merrier. Yeah, so... Uh, the early validators will probably all run, like all the nodes will be in Argentina. I would, I would, I'm guessing, um, definitely the plan is that like, you know, like Rodrigo knows people with data centers, you know, in the, in the data centers outside of Argentina, like Mexico, Brazil, or the, the next ones we would go to, you know, I think there's some level of scale that we have to get to before that, but hopefully we get there pretty, pretty fast. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, the plan is not just to do it in Argentina. The plan is to have it across Latin America. I'm excited about it. I mean, I think it's like you know, uh, an obvious thing to do, um, get, get stuff out of the cloud, uh, get it in Latin America, run minority clients. I guess the, the sort of the interesting thing about the architecture is, and there are people out there that are like doing something similar, uh, to this like deposit process, but it's basically going to be as non-custodial as we can make it right. You, you go to a website, um, and you know, hopefully we can get it on, make it static, put it on IPFS, but you know, you go to a website and you deposit and you, there's like some, you know, you deposit into a, a contract that sends it to the deposit contract and sets it up so that, uh, you set the withdrawal address and you control to, to an address that you control. And so it's like relatively non-custodial. What you actually do still trust us for is one to run the nodes. That's sort of like on, you know, that's impossible to, uh, to get around, but you also trust us the, the way Ethereum currently works is you need the, the BLS uh, key uh, in order to initiate the withdrawal right now. And there is a PR or at least an issue. I think it was actually a PR. It just wasn't a fully formed PR when I, when I read it like a couple weeks ago. 
by Danny, I believe, to fix this so that the withdrawal address can also initiate the withdrawal. So like until that happens, you'll also be trusting us to not like we can't steal it, but we can't like the you know, we control the key which allows the withdrawal. So we could not give you your money back if we didn't want to. So like I say, relatively non-custodial until that gets fixed. Um, so, I, you know, I, I don't think that's that far away. I don't think we need a fork for it. Um, so, you know, it might even happen in the next few months. It's absolutely phenomenal. I, I'm genuinely happy to hear that. It's fantastic because like a lot of people, you know, the people who criticize Ethereum for being centralized after merge, you know, they say, oh yeah, it's, it's all controlled by LIDAR. But like, yeah, but like anyone can just create LIDAR competitor. So <laughs> mad respect for you actually doing it in a different geography. And you know what I was thinking? Like, even I wonder how much do you get slashed? Let's, let's say like your data center is nuked. So like it takes two weeks to withdraw, right? So how much would you get slashed in two weeks in case it not goes down? I don't think you would even lose the whole stake, or would you? You would lose a little bit if, um, you know, we have like plans for that. Um, so it shouldn't be that bad. I'm not like, I'm not going to pitch this as the highest, like the highest uptime service out there. Like I, there's a whole, like part of my criticism well, let me, let me tell you a story. <laughs> uh, so like fast forward or like rewind three years ago to three years ago. So like Q, Q3 2020, um, I'm trying to figure out like, you know, it's a bear market. I'm trying to figure out how to make Weekend Ethereum News sustainable. And so I hit upon the idea of, oh, I will go out and like promote uh, a staking pool. Uh, and like, there's so much money in that, right? Like even with the price of ETH at $300, like this is like easily the way that like, you know, I get rich off of promoting a staking pool. I'm like, you know, I'll go out and I'll vet it and make sure that it's, it's really good. And like, this is what I would actually put my money in and I'll put my money in it and all that sort of thing. Like I'll really have skin in the game. Like I'm not going to put any, my money, I'm not going to like endorse or promote anything that I don't really, really believe in. Uh, and I'm convinced that I'm going to make a lot of money off this, like for all of Q3 and like, and then like I go out and I start vetting these things and I just, they were all terrible. Like all the staking pools at the time were terrible. They literally all were running in AWS. They were all running Prism and you know, at the time Prism had like a super majority. So it was, it was absolutely terrible in every way. And I couldn't believe it, but I couldn't like, you know, sign on to any of these things, no matter how much they pay me. Cause like, I wouldn't put my own money into them. So, and the, the reason why I think is because they all sort of came from the cosmos, maybe even a little bit of Solana, uh, ideology of just like, we have a massive, you know, eight server and in AWS and we worry about uptime. None of them really like got the idea of minority clients being important. Uh, none of them understood that uptime wasn't important. Um, so like to your question about like how much would you lose if you were down for two weeks, you really don't lose like anything. You basically just like lose your rewards. It's not really a big deal at all, even if you're down for, for two weeks, uh, unless the rest of the network goes down. Uh, so if, if more than a third of the validators go down, so like if you were down and AWS also went down or something like that, then like that could be a big deal. Or if like a client had an issue, um, then you could start losing significant amounts of, of ETH um, if you were down for two weeks. Now, um, you know, I'm not the DevOps guy, um, but I am like uh, helping architect it to make sure that we are not like a Cosmos staking pool. Uh, no hate on Cosmos, by the way. It's like one of the few real communities in crypto. But, you know, their staking is, is definitely much more about uptime and Ethereum's is not. And so, 
you know, my, you know, I'm, I'm definitely pushing for all sorts of, uh, I don't mind going down. I don't really care whether we're at 99.999% of uptime or 99.9% of uptime, or frankly, even like 99% of uptime. Like it's not really that material to your, to your, to your rewards as a, as a staker. Um, what I'm pushing for is more like, you know, really like resiliency of the network and, you know, um, not getting slashed. Um, which even isn't as important as it used to be right now that we have withdrawals. Um, you, you didn't really want to get slashed in January 2021 because then your ETH was stuck and, you know, you know, slashing isn't even really that big a deal either most of the time, right? Like you have 32 ETH. I think usually like the, you usually just get slashed the minimum. So you lose one ETH. So like what actually if you got slashed in January 21, like what you really lost was not getting slashed. Like, OK, you lost your one ETH. What you lost is the fact that it was locked up and just sitting there for the next, you know, two years. So that's, the, you know, that's the really the, the, the key difference. Like I said, I'm not, um, I push internally for architecture that is, you know, all about not getting slashed and good for Ethereum. And, and, and like at least risky. Actually, that's actually something I'm curious what you feel about. Because you say it's a Lido competitor and in some sense it is, but we are not going to do an LSD, at least not to start. And I know some people think it's necessary. I actually think it's not. So, you know, Ethereum is not really architected to to have a crazy amount of its ETH get staked. Um, and now we do have a crazy amount of our ETH staked and it's only going to go up with withdrawals. But uh, so somebody like Justin Drake would say you really should have this, you know, an LSD so that the economic bandwidth of Ethereum uh, it remains intact so people can use it as, as collateral, you know, uh, people can, you know, make stable coins out of it, you know, stuff like that. But Rodrigo and I were talking about it and, you know, your cold storage ETH, like how much would you want to put into this, right? And we were like, well, if we have an LSD, like, you know, like, like I don't know, I don't, I, I wouldn't put as much in, you know, I frankly, I like, any sort of extra risk, uh, I just am not into, and and it's not it's not really the risk around around the token or like the code risk around the token, right? It's more like usually the, the oracle risk, right? So, you know, Lido uses Chainlink, so you have Chainlink risk. Uh, Rocket Pool uses their. Uh, sorry, I sort of smile. I, I mean, I'm not negative about it, but the the term I use in my head is sort of negative. They have their pumping group as their is their oracle, right? Like their ODAO, their Oracle DAO is, you know, it's like people that like, you know, are getting paid in RPL and they're all it's like explicitly like they have to be relatively high profile. Um, and I think it's like brilliant on their part, to, to be clear. I do feel like some of them should have disclosed it a lot more um, because I really remember like all of a sudden everybody was pumping, you know, Rocket Pool one day and like I have some RPL bags so it's not like I was unhappy about it but it just struck me as weird and then like you know only last month did I see a tweet that was like oh these guys are all getting paid like $300,000 a year in RPL and I was like oh that's why they're all pushing it so hard <laughs> like <laughs> I feel like some of these people should be you know mentioning it a little bit more yeah I mean, I mean you know my, my first reaction is like yeah I mean my first reaction is like yeah definitely Get, get staked token but like you know they can use it on like a different DeFi. but i don't know i don't know it would be interesting to, to look like what is the usage of uh ste right like what is it what do people actually do with it do the people put some into you know 
some yield farm or something something like that. Yeah. I, mean, I wonder. I wonder. I mean, initial initial reaction, I think, for for most people is going to be like, hey, but you know, if I stake, at least I get a staked staked bet. I don't know, but I, I haven't thought about this deeply, so <laughs> my opinion is like of very limited value. Yeah, you know, I I had the same reaction, right? Which is like, for a while, we were planning on having a you know a, the LSD, the, the the tokenized thing, and then you know we just. I don't know. We like we one day we were just we're thinking about it. And we're like we just honestly we really don't want to do that. So I'm pulling up the the Steph uh, token here, and on Etherscan. So the number one is the Lido's wrap Steph token. I don't understand. So they they why would you wrap wrap it? Is it on the IC twenty already? Yeah, I don't get that. There must be some reason. I. I guess I am not. I don't hold Steph, so <laughs> I there there there's it's probably. I mean, I don't know. If we assume that that's that's number one and that's thirty one percent. Number two is is just a regular EOA apparently, and it's not labeled on EtherScan. Number three is Curve, which is three point three percent. So uh, it seems to sort of indicate that not that much is being. Uh, is, is being held, but I don't know. Let's, uh, let's see this wrapped wrap stuff holders list. Ave is fifteen percent of that. So yeah, actually, it looks like you're probably right. It's you know we're talking 25 percent of stuff at most. Seems like it's deposited in a in a DeFi protocol according to that brief little sojourn. So no, we'll see. You know, we can always add one later too, right? Um, I think the guy. I, I think my problem is really like Oracle risk is you know to me like if if I'm out there telling somebody like hey like you should be willing I'm willing to put my cold storage into it like you should too like I I really want to absolutely minimize well not you should too but I'm willing to you might be willing to <laughs> I want to be careful with my words here um, I don't tell anyone what they should do. Um, you know, but I, if I'm willing to, like, you know, you might be willing to too. Uh, and I, yeah, with Oracle Risk, I it makes me nervous. Yeah, that's that's, that's fair enough. And this actually leads nicely to a question that I had later, which was more in general about now it's going to affect you in particular. Uh, how are you thinking about uh, the proposal build the separation being added to the call protocol, and what sort of how are you going to run your validators? How are you going to handle MEV? Oh, you know, I go I going to enable. Uh, you know, MEV for, for the people who stake uh, with your pools and stuff. Yeah, we are most likely going to uh, to just let you use like use whatever builder is the most profitable. There's some debate internally, so we'll see. Uh, I, I can't. And what if, what if that what if what if most profitable builder is alpha compliant, or is using you know sequencers that are alpha, alpha compliant? Well, that's. That's more of a hypothetical than a possibility, right? Because it's the non-compliant ones that are always going to be profitable. Yeah. So, I, um, I don't th that I don't think that's the, really the worry. Um, yeah, we'll see. Uh, there, you know, there's some thought that we might also let people choose what they want to like, whether you know whether they want to do. We'll see. <laughs> I don't have a firm answer on that yet. Okay, so aside from like how it affects you, what are your general thoughts on MEV? How much of a problem it, it is? Can we solve it? Uh, and do you like like current solutions in particular, like adding proposal builder to call protocol itself? Um, 
Yeah, that's a that's a huge uh, rabbit hole to go down. Like opening up Pandora's box here. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like where to start? You know, I I forget what his name. I believe it's a hate really is, but P. McGowan, uh, and he's he's out there and tweets about it sometimes. He, I mean, I remember his Reddit post before the network launched about like, hey, like you know, they didn't call it MEV at the time, but hey, like you know, the, the miners can do crazy things here, right? And this could be an issue for you in the future. And uh, I mean, I don't know, it wasn't you know, it wasn't worth delaying for or anything, right? And like people people knew it, um, and you know, he was claiming it would be an issue. And for, you know, six, five years, whatever it is of Ethereum's history, it really wasn't an issue. You can go back to, like, the status token sale in whenever it was, June 2017, where F2 Pool did some, you know, they, they included their own transactions, basically, to, to the people that pay them. Uh, if I recall correctly, they also denied it, which was obviously incorrect as you can see it in the block explorer <laughs> but uh and that, you know it was also like a dumb decision by status the way they did their sale like they limited they limited the gas price that like in the contract to like 50 50 guay or whatever so you like you couldn't like people couldn't bet on it anyway i guess i'm going down a tangent on my tangent but the to me like the i would have liked to have seen more of a pushback culturally on mev right like uh, and for a while we had it and sort of like the norm held and you know like that was enough and there was nothing in code to, to, to push back on it but uh, then we just kind of gave up um, like on the cultural solution because there was no te technical solution and you know in a permissionless network you know eventually people do the adversarial thing but I still feel like as a community we could have like done more like to fight it and I I'm, I'm a little disappointed that we didn't even try and maybe it wasn't worth it. Maybe, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. I mean, we can see it with like the majority client thing, you know, run minority clients, how hard that's been. Um, we've seen like Orlido or, or whatever it is. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's actually pretty hard uh, to solve community, like socially problems, but you know, there's a lot of reasons for that, right? I mean, I, you know, uh, we, we did eventually sort of solve the client diversity. We're in the process, like on the, on the, on the staking side, the CL side, Prism is, you know, not a super majority. In fact, it's not even the, the number one client anymore. It's actually Lighthouse. Uh, is, is so, so we've sort of solved that, but yeah, I don't know. I, I like MEV is like one of those things where, um, you can go down that rabbit hole forever. Uh, I don't really live in that world, so I don't think I have any like juicy opinions on it outside of um, what I already said. I'm a little disappointed that Flashbots, maybe this is my juicy opinion, opinion Flashbots has sort of just given up and said, we're going to do a chain, a, a chain for consensus on consensus, and we're going to use SGX. I'm like, eh, I mean, I'm not excited about that. There's never been a moment where... I thought SGX was really workable, um, but you know, I don't know. Smarter people than me think that maybe it will be someday. Dan Benet, I think, recently said something like, "You know, this space, like blockchain space, has really opened up, you know, cryptography and zero knowledge, uh, and like, you know, pu pushed a lot of money into it, and you know, really expanded the research. And you know, maybe this would happen for things like TEEs or 
you know, the, the generic term for SGX. So maybe, but I don't know. Yeah, I'm not excited about it. What can I say? Yeah, I have very similar position to yours. Like, uh, uh, it's not something that I focus on mostly, but I just, you know, when you see things happening, like now they're talking about like wallets sending transactions directly to like... Uh, 4337. Yeah, they send transaction bundles directly to, you know, instead of going through mempool. I, I, anything that doesn't go through mempool, it just seems so... Like we are building, you know, the dark pools in Threadfy, like what the Citadel is doing. Like we are just building that into Ethereum ecosystem. I, I thought we were meant to be against that. Yeah, so I, I, yeah. I don't have a good solution. I, I, I don't, don't like the solution offer. <laughs> but again, smarter people than me are working on Ethereum. We, so uh, I, I very much echo. We don't have... I mean, we, we currently have like multiple multiple pools now right of, of transactions you know we have like the main one we have you know the special proprietary order flow that goes to flashbots or that goes to CalSwap. then we have this 4337 you know it's pretty fantastic pretty fascinating uh if you are like in the latency arb game or you know like the high frequency trading because it's you know basically all all of that it's like a very interesting mathematical you know plus latency problem you know, I don't know anything about any of those, so um, you know, I, I, I just listen and see what people do. It does seem like people are making crazy amounts of money right now, though, and that is definitely not. Doesn't feel like the future we were trying to build. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let's let's switch gears slightly to kind of more abstract topics. Uh, not abstract, but like a little bit further away from technicals. What is the most most exciting thing happening in Ethereum right now? Most exciting thing happening in Ethereum right now. Interesting. Yeah. You, you, you see all the news every week. <laughs> <laughs> there, I mean, there's so many interesting things that are happening, right? I mean, zero knowledge is slowly getting there on, on many fronts. You know, if I was an app developer, I think, you know, I would be really trying to figure out how I could take advantage of that and, and do something novel. But I'm not an app developer. I saw Solidity, you know, almost 10 years ago now. And I was like, no, thanks. Not for me. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm excited by like rollups getting adopted. But, you know, the honest truth is that they are really centralized sidechains right now. That, you know, the difference between Avalanche and a rollup is, is not that high. <laughs> and, you know... The difference is like the op, the like the rollups are honest about it, and you know the Avalanche people are insanely dishonest about it. <laughs> uh, in fact, actually, Avalanche in particular, going back to our SGX discussion, their bridge runs is run on SGX. It's an it's an it's a normal Ethereum address r running SGX, presumably in like the Avalanche founders like garages <laughs> like it's it's pretty bad like and there's like billions of dollars in that bridge uh so you know I don't know I guess that's maybe the bull case for SGX is that nobody has you know has cracked it yet or you know maybe they haven't gotten access to goon server they haven't haven't like you know broken into its house yet <laughs> thankfully I suppose for all of us right um because it would be embarrassing uh and you know like the price would go down a lot if you know like that bridge got hacked uh just like that's billions of dollars to get dumped on the market <laughs> um i don't know if i have a great answer about what's the most exciting thing you know rollups getting adoption is is good but you know i have to say that like i'm you know they they publish call data uh and soon blobs but until they're really more decentralized it's hard to really call them l2s yeah, I mean, it's good to hear, you know, because there is a lot of cheerleading. I'm kind of in between 
you know, like there's a lot of shielding. I, I, I think in Platonic Ideal, they, they are sufficient. They meet all the, everything you would want to meet. But right now they are so far away from Platonic Ideal. And the path there, I think it's going to be hard, but I'm optimistic, like, you know. At the end of the day, so far, every problem Ethereum managed to solve, even though years late, but it has. <laughs> and I kind of have a similar, similar opinion of the rollups. Like, I think they'll get there. And if they don't, like, there is enough open source code that if some of them are bad actors, it's going to be trivial. You know, a couple of, couple of years down the line, it's going to be trivial. Hey, just to do your, do your own rollup and then have, like, the force ejecting, where, you know, you can eject from main thing and then figure out how to do uh, business trial sequences. I, I, I'm optimistic, but yeah, I, I share your sentiment. I, I wish it was further down the line. Yeah, I have to say I've definitely like moved away from my own sort of like pumping of, of rollups in L2s. Um, probably nobody notices but me, but you know, like uh, I sort of helped promulgate Kane's L2 22 meme. Uh, I was sitting in Buenos Aires in January 22. And, you know, I sort of tried to pick it up and make it like a, a meme. And I guess briefly it sort of was. Um, and I, I did like, you know, I did put my own skin in the game. Like I have more money on optimism and arbitrum than frankly I should. <laughs> uh, like I, because I mean, like, like I said, like I, I do think there are some trust assumptions that are not great. Um, but I sort of feel like because I you know tweeted some of the things i did that like i need to keep money on there more than i actually should because it's like i don't know otherwise i think it's like dishonest on my part so uh yeah hopefully i don't lose money <laughs> <laughs> so that, that, now let me ask you what is the most troubling thing happening at you yeah possibly mev <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's why i didn't want to talk about it uh, yeah, I mean, relayers right now are are sort of like the underbelly of. Um, we could argue that you know they are the centralization point, uh, and there are not that many of them. They are not monetized. They are entirely altruistic uh, in the current stack of where we are, and you know it's not it's not great. Uh, I don't, you know, I'm not like an expert in there, so I don't really, really want to go down that rabbit hole. But I mean, there, there's some good podcasts on them. Actually, um, Hazu did a little series just like in the last few months about it. And there's, oh yeah, I, I, I listened to it. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, specifically the episode with Matt Cutler from from Blog Native is is really, really good, and he lays out, you know, in very, you know, good detail all about it. It's not great. I mean, I think it, like, you know, there's there's always pressure to centralize on every layer of the stack. Right. And like, that's something we need to continually fight. And I think, you know, Bitcoin, well, we, we had this in proof of work and Bitcoin has it right now. And a lot of times they weren't, they aren't honest about it now. I like, I tweet about, you know, Bitcoin's block production being centralized, you know, three pools had 71%, you know, a couple of days ago of, of the hash power. That's pretty bad. Um, but you, you can, you know, ours isn't quite as bad in Ethereum, but, you know, some, you know, I think it's like four relayers have 50% of current, you know, uh, in Ethereum or whatever. So yeah, it's not, it's not great. I mean, I don't know. There's, there's, there's an argument that you don't want a crazy amount of relayers too. Uh, I mean, I, I think going back to your earlier question, like we do need to get that stuff in, into the protocol in a way that is significantly better than now. And, you know, it's coming. I think it's like more or less solved from a research standpoint. But, you know, 
obviously the implementation details can can take a while. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so I, I think on this topic, like uh, 10 years from now, Ethereum has failed. What was the reason? I mean, did cryptography got broken, I guess would be one. Yeah, I struggle with that question. I, I don't really see like failure as like really a possibility, I, but I guess it like you have to define failure too. Uh, it fails to live up to its ideals. It's like maybe, you know, it keeps on going, but like to do anything in DeFi, you do KYC. It, it, but, I mean, mainly main thing that I care about, and I think all of us care about is censorship resistance and, you know, this, via decentralization, right? And, and per permissionless. Like these ideals uh, slowly, little by little, get, get eroded. Oh, you get OFAC here. Oh, we don't like this guy. We block him. Oh, we kick this guy. No, no. Do you know what I mean? Like slow erosion of ideals. And kind of, that, that's how I define the failure. It doesn't live up to what we are trying to build. You know, if it's controlled by, it, you know, if you have to like take a photo of your passport to interact with half of DeFi, we have failed. Well, that might be inevitable. <laughs> so like, ah! <laughs> some of us probably need to lower our expectations. I mean, you like go back to the early days of the internet and like a lot of those people thought these things and then like it, it, it ended up in a very bad place. I mean, specifically, like, like I say, it might be inevitable to the year 50% of DeFi. I think that is almost inevitable. Uh, the question is like how, you know, viable the other 50% remains that isn't KYC, you know, because like imagine, uh, so Uniswap V4 uh, makes it possible to sort of like create some like, you know, with their hooks to do some like compliant pools. And, you know, there's some people that are upset about that and I get why, but you, you could also see that these pools end up being like the way that like you know, everything that is explicitly a security and everything that is TradFi moves on chain. Well, if everything that is TradFi moves on chain, like, let's be honest, it's probably going to remain like, I mean, that would probably be more than 50% of DeFi, right? And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. I mean, you know, like these whole KYC solutions, I mean, I hate KYCing, you know, I have a tweet from once upon a time that went viral, like, you know, KYCing is, is doxing yourself to the dark web, right? Like I, I definitely, like I hate KYC. I feel like every time I KYC, I'm basically asking for people to like come, you know, like break into my house and steal from me and whatnot. Um, but I don't know. I mean, it is like the existing reality that we have of, you know, governments have like completely stolen our privacy. It is interesting. I mean, I actually think that some of it is insanely undervalued is the extent to which you know, cash has essentially been criminalized in, you know, like, like with the internet with the, over the last few decades. I mean, I can't speak to Europe exactly, but I mean, in the US, right? Like everything is 10x works. Whatever you have, whatever is broken in America, in Europe, everything is 10x works in terms of privacy and liberty and stuff. Well, sometimes, sometimes not though. Like for example, you know, the, the, if you get caught, like if you get caught, if you get, yeah, well, and, and some places in the U.S., like near the border, they can just pull you over for no reason. They don't even have to pretend like they have a, an, an issue. And then they'll ask you, like, do you have any money on you? And if you have more than like a few thousand dollars, especially if it's over ten thousand dollars, they just steal it <laughs> legally. And you can theoretically get it back, but you ain't gonna, you know, like no matter how like, you know, I mean, you really would have to be like the sort of person that can like do the years of work. Uh, and spend money on lawyers in order to get it back. And like, hopefully you kept a lot of, you know, paperwork around this. 
And, you know, the government, like the, the local police, they just steal it and they spend it on, you know, like military equipment and whatnot. Uh, and the, the largest bill that we have is, is the, you know, the $100 bill. Whereas like in Europe, you know, like the Swiss have a thousand franc note. And right. So like, I don't know. I don't think it's also quite as illegal to, you know, to, to carry even like not that large. I mean, with inflation, like, you know, 10,000 francs or whatever, or $10,000, it's not like some crazy amount of money anymore. Right. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Is it 10 X worse in Europe? I would guess not. Okay. I'll give you an example. I was in a bank. I was, I was contracting, my company was contracting for, uh, like the most regulated us based crypto company ever the, the, like the, the the blue chip of the blue chip heavily regulated in us it wasn't me working for them it was my company which was like general software company not crypto company one of the clients happens to be them flat out they would not open a bank account for me they just refused to open a bank account for me in a queue ahead of me there was this like retired cockney geezer from london right working class you, you could see and the bank kept asking him like series of uh increasingly interesting questions and him being like a kind of from older generation didn't understand what happened this discussion ended up with the bank threatening to close this guy's account all over a 400 uh, 400 pounds of retirement that he was getting how am i supposed to do commerce how am i supposed to feed my family if i can't even get work how is this guy retired guy obviously he's 400 pounds i don't even know how people live with 400 pounds a week uh, a month and they threaten to close his bank account because of if you're trying to open a if you're trying to open a bank account in europe it's like you are going to police investigation hearing. Like you, you have to like doxious history for freaking years and years. So that's why I mean, I, I mean in this example of the cash. I don't really know what are the laws because there is so many different countries. <laughs> but I assure you, it's it's, it's insane. And, and and we have the Patriot Act and choke point. Thank you guys for <laughs> yeah, yeah, for yeah. this being the case. Yeah, the long arm of the U.S. Uh, regulators on on every stupid thing. Yeah, I mean it's it's obviously bad opening the a bank account in the u.s today i don't i don't really know because i have like not had a bank account for like something like 90 percent of my adult life uh you know i'm actually bankless unlike unlike some people <laughs> I, <love it. laughs> uh, I did briefly try to have a bank account like two years ago in this yeah summer two two years ago and i you know i have a long story about it but i mean like basically like it's quite possible that like my name was just on a blacklist because i i literally would like every day I would try to transfer a little bit of money in and they would uh, like instant, like I would like in initiate the transfer um, into the account and uh, instantly they would like lock me out of my account. And uh, then I would get on the phone and call and this literally happened five days in a row. And they would say like, oh, this will never happen again. Don't worry about it. Yeah, I'm really sorry. Yeah, you know, blah, blah, blah. I don't understand why it happened, you know? Uh, you know, an hour every day, like waiting on hold. Uh, and then finally I just gave up um, and took the money out. So, you know, I don't know. I like, they, they're not allowed to tell you either. I have had the same experience as you. It wasn't like, uh, I tried to transfer like from one of my accounts to another one of my accounts, like $5,000, which is not much. I had to do it like in $2,000 increments. And I, I called them like three times. Hey, it's me, it's not scam. It's my money transferring to a different account. You can see the names, both of them. Are my, it's, it's, it's because like they only ever pile on regulation. So it, and it's just like you have like these years and layers of layers of regulations and systems that oh, we have to enforce this and we have to enforce this. And it's just, they, they don't even know. No, you, you might be right today, I'm not allowed to tell you, but they may not even know. It's, it's just crazy. But, so <laughs> uh, like I have, 
when people complain about banks to me, I usually just say, like, what you really should understand is that banks are really just an extension of the government. Hundred percent. Like in basically every place I know around the world. So, you know, if you just think of banks as like a slightly less inefficient, but still an arm of the government, then you understand that like, oh, okay, like, you know, this thing is like gonna blow up every few years and, you know, uh, it's going to be insane to deal with. <laughs> like, they won't be open whatever I want them to be open. And like, if you under, if like, if you think of it that way, and it is really basically true, right? Like they're so heavily regulated. Uh, I, w I briefly worked in Washington DC right after college in banking regulation. And oh man, the stories I could tell were insane. But just they're like every every time a banker, a bank like a big bank, were our clients, like the biggest banks. Every time they wanted to do something, they had to submit to every single banking regulation and regulatory agency in DC, and not DC. So uh, like they had the Federal Reserve, they had the OCC, the the, the FTS, they had the. I say the OCC. They had uh, New York State. They had um, like a few others. Like um, like it was insane. I mean, it's been twenty years, right? So I, I forget all the alphabet soup agencies, but there were literally you had to get approval from you know a bunch of different agencies. And sometimes the law basically said if you did this, you know, like that was you had to do this. But if you but if you also did this, a different part of the same act would say like you're screwed. <laughs> like it would allow people to sue you basically. So it was like, oh, like uh, the stuff I saw was insane even back then. But you know, if you think of it as it's just like a a a, a weird government agency, like you're basically correct, and it a lot a lot makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So following on what we were talking about, like inefficiencies of the banks and the states, what are your thoughts on network state? Oh boy, the network state. <laughs> uh, you know, I. I, I really, I like Balaji. I, I think he's a really smart thinker. I mean, I think some of his ideas are crazy. Uh, the network state, I'm sort of on the, it's crazy um, for the reason of, I have been following seasteading for 20 years, uh, if not maybe 25 years now. Like I happened upon Patriot Friedman's writing like 25 years ago, uh, who is the grandson of Milton Friedman, by the way, fun fact. Uh, and, you know, it's Milton was like relatively mainstream. Then his son, David, is an economist out in California. And he was like a little bit further out from the mainstream. And then Patriot, you know, is trying to like, you know, reimagine nation states by having people live on ships. Right. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, and I remember when Peter Thiel gave, you know, a million dollars or half a million to Peter to Patriot in like 2005, something like that. And I don't know, that was a moment in which I thought like, oh, I doubt this ever happens, but maybe, right? If it's gonna happen, like maybe, like Peter is giving a bunch of money. But in the end, like, like I, you know, I don't wanna to get too political, but you know, like the, the, the libertarian canard about like government is like the difference between the government and the mafia is like relatively small. It's just the, the legalized, like the monopoly on force. And I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And there is no like way to get around the fact that a bunch of different governments control every land on earth and they have a lot of weapons and you don't. And no matter what you do, like you, you're not going to. And so Balaji like makes all these arguments that basically say like, that's not, you know, like whatever, but like, that's the fundamental reality that we have. And no matter what, like that's not going to change. And until 
until okay there's actually one spot on earth which i know of which is literally not claimed by any nation state right and i've tweeted about it a couple times sudan between sudan yeah there's a name for it i I forget the name but it's just desert but literally nobody wants it uh and until i see people that are like going want to go there you know and populate that which that might actually work right because if nobody wants it like they you know they might actually let you take it you know um maybe maybe not too it wouldn't shock me if not but until people like go get a bunch of guns and like weapons and like really like declare themselves a sovereign entity i I have trouble taking this idea that seriously you know okay let let me perhaps offer a white pill just last episode uh, a couple of days ago do you know about prospera in honduras uh i'm that? not that familiar with the current iteration of it but this like they've been trying to do this in honduras for 15 years now okay well one thing that kind of gives me hope because right now you know with azuzalu and stuff and it's kind of it's it's not just you know crazy libertarians i think i think it's like you know i think a lot of people i mean some people in the Ethereum community community are taking it seriously uh, nicholas uh anzinger who is like trying to do his he, he's estimating there's like 200 million of, like serious capital behind it to actually make it happen. And, you know, Balaji actually created a lot of hype and kind of put it on people's radar. And, and, the, and the things that we were complaining about, like as stuff, as, as laws get crazier, as, as more and more kind of basic functioning of the government is, you know, the, insti- the, 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 the trust in institutions is at all time low, be it media, be it government institutions, the, the laws are getting crazier and crazier. They just compound, like they never remove laws. Governments never get smaller. Do, do you know what is the um, deficit, projected deficit by in 10 years? Do you know how much is it? Roughly? In the United States? Well, I don't know if you can really project a deficit 10 years, but okay. They, they okay, do. I, People I, do. I, but I, yeah, I don't know what it is. Assuming spending is not cut, that's 50 trillion. Okay. GDP today is 23 trillion. That's double of a GDP. Deficit alone. Like in, in nature, you can have exponential function going in indefinitely. Like it show, you know, I am def- I am not one of those doomers and gloomers. I am like very for like the, the obviously the Western democracies are the best places to live ever in history. But snapshot doesn't matter, and I, I think I can make a good case, which I don't want to do now. The trend lines are going downwards. Trend, trend lines are going the wrong direction. Trend lines, you know, governments are always spending too much, and that's a whole thing. I don't really know. If, like that's I have takes there, but. I prefer to not get too political about that stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, I think we should shrink the size of government. That's like not not a hard one to me. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, to to be fair, like even even in Texas, you could go and like start a city, right? Like that's theoretically possible because the state is in the United States. That's theoretically the state is the sovereign ent- entity and not the federal government. Of course, that's in practice that's not true at all but you can still start a city and the state actually will give you a decent amount of like leeway about what you know you know how whatever of course it's relatively limited but you know you could have your own schools and you know you know there are things that you can get away with and and heck i mean like even like cities these days right like they don't enforce the federal drug laws um so you know like there are of course the fbi could still come in and and arrest you for doing things that are legal at a state level but uh you know uh anyway my point is like biology does sometimes say you could like do a like a, a something like that and i would take it more seriously if there were people also like doing that like especially like in texas where like you could probably get the our state government to like give you a decent amount of leeway but they are this, 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 this is the white pill like i, I guess I, I don't want to like you know go into detail and spend too much time on this but i think they are i think from what i've seen and from what i was speaking to like previous guests there's like pop because Banaji like popularized it yet again, before it was just like crazy libertarians, 
but now I feel like more people are taking it seriously. And there's like a serious capital behind it as well. But anyway, let's leave that one there. I hope, let's hope so, right? But this, this, is, this is one thing. Now, now we get into like my, my pet peeves. There is one thing that I'm trying to meme into like Ethereum community. So I, I don't know if you by any chance listen to the podcast uh, called Upstream with Mark Andreessen. And, and, and he talked there about like how he kind of found himself not understanding current socio-political situation like since like whatever, last five or 10 years, okay? So he, he sat down, gone to his cabin, read dozens of books, and kind of his conclusion was never in the history of the world there was a society or state that wouldn't be governed by the elites. And then, you know, he is one of the elites. You know, he, he talks about like, oh yeah, you go to the parties, oh, there's Mark Bloomberg, there's Prince Harry, whatever. He's one of the elites. And, and he's saying like the current elites are hopelessly incompetent and also extremely... It's a marketplace of idea rather than ideas. And, you know, we, we don't have to go through the details. Like I kind of, this is his summary of the current situation. And he says like, it is possible to replace the elites. This has happened in the past. Like, you know, it was a couple of, I think it was a couple of tens of thousands of Bolsheviks. They, they changed the entire course of Russia, right? Then you had the Sons of Liberty who made America free, right? But these kind of transitions do happen. Or like, you know, Singapore was a barren rock. Now it's a financial center. The Israel was like mostly a desert. Now, Israel has more startups than, in every tech sector, Israel has more startups than the entirety of EU. So these transformations can happen. Perhaps we are too jaded, but, but they can happen. And like, but who is going to be the new elite, right? Who is going to replace the current useless elite? Okay, if you agree with the framing, just to finish the point, I'm trying to meme like the crypto crazies like yourself to become the new elite. <laughs> what, do you think, what do you think about that? I was about to make a joke about, you know, like who's going to be the new elite. And I was like, the, the Bitcoiners always like make that joke. Like we're, we're the ones, you know, we're the virtuous, you know, whatever. I guess to say that in a more politic, uh, more pragmatic way, like it make it to the state where we can no longer ignore it, right? Like they're coming down hard after crypto. I think, I, I think Mark and his crew are kind of trying to do it. I hear like a lot of people in Silicon Valley who are kind of like more, you know, on kind of Mark's side are trying to take it seriously. And like the second alternative group of people is the, you know, the crypto people. And we should start taking it seriously as well. I, I think, I mean, what do you think about Like, what, what do you mean take it seriously? Like be, try to be the new elites? Like, uh, I don't know. I mean, that's, I mean, there's also a long history of, you know, US government, federal government, Washington DC extracting its pound of flesh. And, uh, you know, that sort of seems like it's what they're doing here. Obviously, Bill Clinton you know, sort of steered the Democrats away in the 90s from being Luddites. And the current Democratic elites seem quite happy to be Luddites. So, I mean, there is a difference there, but uh, I don't know. I do think, like, I mean, there's also a, a large chunk of even the Democratic Party that is not into, like, the Luddite of, you know, these 80-year-old septuagenarians like, you know, Biden and Gensler and Liz Warren. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I like I, I think like in the end, it will probably end up being not nearly as big a deal there. I mean, should people be involved in their local governments? I agree with that. Yeah, sure. I don't know. But like people holding, I don't know, crypto coins as elites is a bit of a jump for me. <laughs> I, I have failed to convince everyone so far. So, <laughs> But I don't think I'm making a good case for it, but uh, I think it is a case. Okay, so I'm going to stop torturing you with, with the politics questions. Uh, let's, go, let's go back to the technical. Have you been following Light Ethereum server, the get they are doing the rewrite? Have you been, have, have you, have you been following not, not that? Not really, server? no. You know, that's like such a, 
light clients, real light clients are six months away for the entire history of Ethereum, you know? I got one running. I got one running on the phone. It was working with all the usual caveats, okay? Then the merge happened. Broken. Busted. Expo uh, uh, asked a question on GitHub. Oh, yeah, it's going to work in four weeks. That was six months ago. And, but, but now, finally, the, Peter Schlage, he, he, he wrote a post. LES 2.0, okay? They, they actually make, they're actually talking about it being on by default. How freaking amazing. Look, that was the biggest problem. Like, you could never get enough peers. So that's amazing. I never even thought I'd see that. That's fantastic. So, you know, this is going to be bad for consensus, but potentially we could have a future where we don't need stuff like Infura, where like the phones and the browser extensions can connect directly to the random Ethereum nodes. And I think we should definitely push for that future. However, this is my pet peeve, number two. So what they are suggesting is like limiting number of historical blocks and transactions you can get via LES, like very small number. Kind of, kind of my best case is like having hundreds or like non, non blocks of historical data versus having like three months or even like a month is like a zero to one discontinuity when it comes to building real world UX and UI for consumer applications. So I think one thing that they're trying to limit it to like very, very small number and they're saying state is enough, but in, in practice state is not enough. And then there are applications we cannot think of uh, that may be possible. And, and obviously like kind of solving inferior problem would be huge. Are you, are you familiar with Encubed? No. Um, it was from the Slacket guys. So the, the Genches and uh, then they were bought by Blockchains LLC. They had a light client. Uh, that I, from, I never actually ran it, so I, I guess I'm part of the problem, so I don't know. But supposedly it worked, but it just got zero adoption. There's been a long, you know, I think that's part of the problem, right? Is there's been this long history in Ethereum of light clients are, you know, always perpetually almost there, but we never really figured out, are we okay with light client, like with it just being altruism? Are we going to, are we willing to put it on by default in the, in the client? You know, will the client teams make that the default? Will people turn it off if it is the default? I guess we've never really found that out. Um, or should we have incentives? You know, like for the longest time, right? It was like, you know, we have to have incentives because everything has to be perfectly trustless. And, you know, like we, and that's thing, that's just the thing that's never, never been there. Uh, you know, it's a hard one, right? Because we don't want to make it harder. We don't want to increase the burden on running a node, you know? So, you know, what is the default? We'll see what, what that happened, what happens there. That's the trade-off. That's why they, that's why they're not uh, allowing historical, historical blocks because then those blocks and transactions have to be indexed, right? But like my, my argument is like, Hey, okay. So let's at least base it on like actual numbers. Like let's say we increase computational requirements to run a full node at home by 10%. If that gives us like two, three months of historical blocks, I think that's such a win because like, I think, I think two, three months getting to the point where it, for most dApps, it doesn't make sense to use Infura, right? Like imagine Tornado Cash, not losing its RPC endpoint, which did, which it did lose, right? So I, I, think, I think that's huge. I, I'm kind of dismayed by how little people care about or how bad my arguments are. I think this is huge. Like having usable, like they're already making it reliable, which is a big step. Like this was, there was a problem with like the first version. It was just like flaky as hell. You had to run your, you basically had to run your, your own nodes anyway. And at that point you can, you might as well just use Infura, right? So, but, but, but I don't know. I don't know. I, I guess I'm just trying to rally, rally, get your support. Like, I, I try to speak about this to as many people as possible because they are talking about it now. And I think this is huge. Like we could actually get rid of all the RPC endpoints. It could be decentralized. It could just, instead of connecting to the centralized servers, you can connect to the nodes directly. I think this, this is how it should have been 
to begin with. And if it only increases computational requirements by 10%, that's a, I, I, don't, I don't know how that's not a good trade-off. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I will. Yeah, I, only Geth. Yeah, Geth will do it. Yeah, yeah. I like. I mean, I. I mean, hopefully we 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 try it. I mean, I don't know. We'll, we'll see what happens, right? Um, I'll send you a link. I'll send you a link uh, after the call. Uh, yeah, so sorry, so sorry. It wasn't really a question. Like I said, I'm just trying to popularize this. You know, amongst the prominent people in Ethereum community, like yourself. Uh, I think I think it deserves more attention. Now, that was one of those questions that I wanted to make sure that I asked. Well, Vita Vitalik is super into this too, right? And it's like one of the funny things of like, Vitalik has always been the biggest proponent of light clients, but Vitalik is Vitalik. So it's, you know, it's like people don't even know that he's like one of the biggest proponents of it because I don't know, he's, he doesn't really exercise any government go governance force, right? And so he sort of is like limited to like tweeting about things. But then you know he he quits Twitter after every bull market, <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, the good and the bad of Vitalik, right? It's uh, you know it, 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 he always will chime in if you like deep into the weeds of this stuff, right? With well, no, no, we can't do that because like we don't really want to break the the light clients. It's like well, Vitalik, like we don't even have like lads anyway. Okay, you know what? This is a good idea. Thank you. I'm going to attack him. I'm, I'm gonna, they're gonna hate me. I'm going to attack him. I'm going to attack him now. One of my many, many, many comments on the Well, good, good luck because, well, if it's on GitHub, then maybe, but yeah, if you won't tweet it about it because he's quit Twitter. <laughs> no, no, GitHub, GitHub, I'll take him on GitHub. Right, and, and, and now, the, now the red meat for the fans. I, I, I so enjoy it. Like, ah, I think I find that Ethereum people are kind of too nice, but you, you stick it to the Bitcoiners. So I guess, uh, well, give us your opinion on Bitcoin. I enjoy your tweets uh, a lot <laughs> when, you, when you talk about it. I think you're probably a bit disappointed. I, you know... Not David, not again. <laughs> I, I like Bitcoin. I think it's like one of the better thing. I mean, it's like one of the few things in crypto that isn't a scam, right? But, you know, I don't think it should be number one. Uh, I mean, obviously, I think Ethereum should be number one in terms of market cap. Uh, I think that also, in a weird way, I think Ethereum flipping Bitcoin is necessary for Bitcoin to achieve like any sort of sense of, you know, its goals, right? Because like it's become so stagnant and, you know, they, they sort of like gave up. And, you know, I think even like the Craig Wright lawsuits have like me meant that a lot of the core developers have quit. And, you know, I think they've also let themselves become over-reliant on some of their toxic influenzas. Which, you know, I personally that like, you know, you asked about Ethereum failing, like maybe maybe I'm a little worried about that personally myself these days. Like I, I Ethereum needs to be elevating the, like the technical people and the people that care and not let our, you know, our community get overrun with number go up and people that don't really care about this stuff. And like that, I'm, I'm a little concerned about that uh, right now. And, you know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I don't really want to like attack anyone personally, but yeah, I. I don't. I, I definitely am, am worried about that, and I don't want Ethereum to go down that road that is has happened to Bitcoin. But again, to go back to like what is cool about Bitcoin, I mean, you know, Lightning is is cool. Like obviously, like the things that people say to like about it to promote Bitcoin is are insane. Um, but if if state channel networks can work, it, it'd be great for Ethereum if they could, you know get that to work i'm sort of skeptical they can <laughs> because we saw how hard it was on ethereum and i was pretty close to some of those things and you know we have really smart people working on it for years for many years now and 
you know, state channel networks are just really hard and deceptively hard because you can spin up a state channel and get it working, you know, in a day, in a, in a hackathon, in a couple hours, right? So then everybody thinks like, oh, like state channels are easy and like all we have to do is go out and ship it. And it turns out like, no, state channel networks are insanely hard and to do securely and decentralized and, you know, all that stuff. So, yeah. Anyway, Bitcoin, I, you know, I think it's important to like recognize that most Bitcoiners actually care about decentralization. They actually, you know, like they're actually normal people. Maybe they should fight back against some of their influenza class more than they do. But, you know, they actually are like relatively like allies in decentralization. Whereas if you think about like, you know, the sequel Lunavaxes, like those people are very adamant that they don't care about decentralization. And the VCs that back them, they don't care about decentralization. You know, none of those people are ever going to be like allies in any sort of like, you know, quote unquote fight or whatever it is. Right. Whereas like Bitcoin people like actually like most of them actually do care. Cosmos people like are actually builders. Right. Like there are actually some good communities out there outside of Ethereum. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. Sorry if that wasn't the answer you were looking for. But yeah, you know, like most of our guests, most of our guests are basically Ethereum people, like 99 percent. And I'm always the one who is like the, I am not Ethereum Maxi, actually. Uh, I, I am not Ethereum Maxi. I'm not actually, I actually double with Solana, okay? Sorry, controversial. I, I, I'm not, I, and I spent most of, like I wrote, I still, I think I still wrote more, more Bitcoin code than Ethereum code, but like I'm mostly focused on Ethereum. Like I, I think, I think Ethereum has like the biggest chance of succeeding into, into, you know, into what I want to see out of cryptocurrency. So I'm like, but I'm not Maxi. I'm much more open to other currencies than, than other Ethereum people. But, but yeah, it's so funny that, that who are Ethereum Maxis? I'm always more Maxi than them when it comes to, you know, talking shit about Bitcoin. Is there going to be 50 years from now? Is there going to be more than 21 million Bitcoin? Yeah, in 50, I think it's probably likely that it'll be more than 21. I mean, I don't know. It's a hard one to say. Like, it's possible that Bitcoin death spirals like post flipping and like literally just, you know, they all give up. The, 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 the narrative is dead. Like, you know, uh, that seems possible to me. I don't know if that's, in fact, it's probably like my base case, but I don't, I mean, I don't necessarily like to say that super loudly because people get upset. Uh, although that does sound like the sort of thing that I would say, doesn't it? Um, it's a good soundbite for the intro yeah. of the podcast. <laughs> I, I, I do think like, you know, death spiral is somewhat likely. I also think that there is some people that would actually revitalize Bitcoin and the whole remnant of like people that care and want Bitcoin to be cool and actually be a thing like the you know the, the eric walls the people doing ordinals the actual developers uh, i think even a lot of ethereum people if bitcoin were possible to get stuff to happen they would like do stuff on bitcoin again right even you know if bitcoin made some changes around like making zero knowledge rollups possible right now i think they would need a, a fork I don't know if it's a hard or soft work. I'm actually, I don't know if they could do that by soft work. Uh, seems hard to do it by soft work. So I think they probably need a hard fork, which of course is like one of the things that they are super proud of is like, whoa, we never hard fork, we only soft fork. And, you know, I think like there are certain things that they probably need to get over and like that's a big one as a community. But, you know, I don't know, maybe like, maybe the whole thing revitalizes after the flipping and they decide like, oh, we actually want to compete and they, you know, they start like being a thing again.
I don't know. I'm, I'm like somewhat optimistic about that. So you heard it here first. Uh, Evan is actually optimistic on Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> despite, despite, all, despite all his tweets. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I think, I think, dude, like Peter Todd himself is saying, like, they're going to be, have to, they're going to increase the, the limit. Uh, even with ordinals, they, because they ossified so early, I, I think this is my biggest problem. There is no intellectual honest left in Bitcoin. There is no honest intellectual debate, right? It's right. all just, they are like vogues of, uh, of crypto. Like they cancel people, they talk nonsense. There is no reason. You, you can't reason with them. They're happy to cancel, oh, shit, 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 When they are obviously, obviously wrong. They haven't solved the, what's going to happen after block reward runs out. And the current, you know, at least the current culture doesn't even allow it to solve. I'm surprised they didn't cancel Peter Todd when he suggested, oh, we're going to have to increase the limit. I, I, I'm surprised. Yep. I, it's only because it was him. Anyone else? Will be like canceled, I, I think right? so. I think if if they even just adopted some sort of fifteen fifty nine, they could probably get away with it for you know so long that it would be okay. Especially with after ordinals. decades talking shit about it. Yeah, <laughs> after decades talking yeah, shit about well, it. Well, whatever. I you know I I think it's like an obvious thing, right? Instead of burning it, we just do like stick it into our our block rewards pool, you know. And uh, you know maybe we have to change the tail emissions or whatnot, but. Uh, I don't think that's like such a big deal. You know, I don't, I don't have a strong view of like when it happens, like, cause I do think there is some level of social, you know, whatever, like belief in, you know, whether stability, uh, matters and, you know, we already see it somewhat, right? Like if, if Bitcoiners were more adversarial, like if, if pools were more adversarial, arguably we would have more instability right now, right? Like the CZ, like when, when Binance got attacked three some years ago now, right? And CZ briefly thought about double spending. You know, if, if like if Bitcoin miners were more adversarial, which I think they eventually will be, like they, they obviously would have double spent, right? Like, cause that would be the thing. And Bitcoin has the culture around adversarial is okay. It's, but except for their miners, because yeah, the miners have big investments in hardware, so they <laughs> they didn't want to kill the golden goose because they were afraid that it would hurt BTC value, um, and they're probably right. But for then, but in the future, when I don't know, that would actually be interesting. Put a, put a prediction market up. Uh, you know, when does when do we have our first like you know, ten block reorg of Bitcoin? Uh, that would be an interesting one. Of course, prediction markets yeah, are hard I, I, in the long term too. So, I've been threatening to do this, like do like an analysis based on like if things don't change, when do they hit, when do they hit the wall? Like when it, when it's when it's going to start being possible? I've been I've been threatening to do it for for a while. Uh, I just don't have time. I'm already working sixteen hours a day. <laughs> anyway, look, okay, last two questions. You know, in, in, in we had like a before Uniswap and after Uniswap. Was it first? Was it second? Was it third? But you really got like some use case out there. It became hard to deny that like smart contracts is just you know ICO fat. Uniswap was like a real application adopted by like, you know, a, a lot of people. Do you see this kind of products? There's like before Uniswap and after Uniswap, you know, then you have the DeFi, DeFi Summer. Do you see any those products on the horizon? A DeFi Summer 2.0 or 3.0, whatever we are on it. You know, if you go back to the early Ethereum days, we were all very bullish on prediction markets as the killer app for Ethereum. And actually, you know, they were, Augur was going to do like the AMM idea. Um, and I was criticizing them back in like the early, like in their Slack channel in 2014, cause I felt the idea didn't work. And like, and, and 
because of MEV and front running for, for fun fact. Or you're and they they abandoned the idea because of that eventually. And you know, of course now we have we have AMMs and we have uh, front running and um, you know, I don't know, we found limits to, to put on it. But I don't know. I mean, so I, I guess it's like things that solve solve all the issues, right? Like, um, you could argue that just like a really great wallet might be the before and after, you know? Some sort of really... Oh, I would argue yeah, this. I would argue this. Some, some sort of really great multi-sig that like is completely formally verified and, you know, I mean, maybe it is safe in the, in the end, but it might not be too, you know? Uh, some just like something that is so perfect at you know putting making it all easy to like you know do all these things uh, might might be the case i mean i don't know obviously like it's hard because there are so many trade-offs and you know people have tried and like there are good things out there like argent that you know uh really really do great jobs uh and yet i still like although it's like sort of solved it's still not exactly solved so um you know people that solve Oracle problem, you know, seems like maybe something that completely changes the game. You know, I'm actually a little bit disappointed that we don't have more innovative apps. You know, like Steelcam, I thought was like a really cool, like actually like different, you know, kind of thing that, you know, it actually was pretty exciting to me. Uh, of course, there is like a, you know, a little bit of like a gambling element to it. Um, but I mean, the honest truth is that tokenizing things. Like Web3 is arguably like the financialization of everything. And there's good and bad to that. <laughs> so, you know, there's always going to be a little bit of a gambling element to anything when everything is financialized. But, you know, I don't know. it is what it is. You know, you know, what I think, what I would like to see is like, um, there's this meme, year of consumer Web3. Like taking the products that exist, like they have proven use cases, and then kind of taking it, take it to Web3. Like for one example, this is this, this guy, I'm not... I'm, I only, I'm only fan of them. They don't pay me. They don't have any coin. They don't even have a coin. They don't have any plans for coin. This guy's called Backfly, which is basically Patreon on Web3. They try, they solved, solved the uh, Patreon on Web3, recurring, recurring payments and stuff. But like, and you, know, you have so many people who kind of got kicked off by Patreon. A lot of people don't like Patreon. You know, don't, again, this is political again, but like, you know, we are supposed to be about censorship resistance. So like, uh, the people who are kind of likely to kick off Patreon, over kicked off Patreon, or you donate to Canadian truckers. Now they ban you, right? I mean, these are the people I think we should appeal to. Like, hey, this is actually a use case, censorship resistance, right? We actually have the use cases. And, and these people, they have like a followings and millions. So I kind of have high hopes that we get to this, this, this point where the things, why are we building this for? I mean, I, I like the DJ as much as, 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 as the next guy, but like we should showcase the, the wider public, you know, them using the product, not because number goes up, but this is actual utility. Hey, if you use Patreon, they can block you, they can ban you. And they, look, they have done it to the trackers. Oh, look, this is the creator that you are a fan of. Maybe it's a bit too edgy. They blocked him. Why don't you just uh, pay via whatever, back by on-chain, by crypto? And, you know, there is no token. There is nothing to go up. Like, these kind of products I would like to see. Follow-up question on this is like, uh, are we doing enough? Like, you know, because the ideals at the beginning was like, hey, this is going to be the currency. You know, like Bitcoiners, they always just talk about how Bitcoin is going to be used for everything in every day. And they, they haven't even, it's not even technically possible today. Because if you use Lightning, you have to have centralized server because lightning you cannot use on the phone which is how people pay everywhere with your phone right because the moment you are offline you lose connection 
no, no longer serve custody, custody deal. So you can't even pay with Bitcoin anywhere. Are we becoming like them? Like, why are we not pushing for more products to actually use crypto? Like, if you have Web2 or you have like Web3 or Web2.5 companies like Pinata, you can't even pay them in crypto. I think this kind of culture, we should be like, at least for the stuff that we control, like companies in our space, we should demand and we should name and shame companies who don't allow to take payments in crypto. And further, we should be pushing for like, hey, make, making it actual currency. Because that will then protect us from, you know, regulation and stuff. This will, like, they, they tried to ban Uber in London, but they couldn't because people complain so much. Right? So have we given up, given up on those ideals? Are we trying to, you know, making it actually used for payments as well? Are we like Bitcoiners that we are just talking shit, but not really getting anything done? Yeah, I mean, there is a, like, going back to the social thing, right? There is a, a social element of what is the cultural norm. Uh, it's hard. I mean, I, like, I, I don't know Pinata's personal situation. Like, I, I like those guys. I've talked to them hackathons over the years. I mean, it could just be they don't take crypto for the same reason, like, that you were talking about earlier about bank accounts, right? Because if they do, then their banks are going to shut them down, and then it's going to make their whole business harder, and most of the people that don't want to pay them in crypto anyway because you know they're nft bros <laughs> so you know it's uh i don't know it is uh i, I don't know i don't want to like question the decisions that people make i feel like that's um i don't know it's a it's a hard one i mean i don't i don't think we should like be as like toxic as you know bitcoin is like you know trying to shame people uh, it's certainly like not something I exactly want to do, but I mean, I've been sort of like criticizing a, you know, a, a podcast lately and I don't like enjoy it. Right. Because I like, I mean, it's just sad to me that like, they've sort of like completely lost the plot. Right. But, um, I don't know. Some, it feels like somebody has to do it. So I guess I do it for that reason. Um, but I don't want to. I would much rather spend my time on anything else. Not that I spend much time on it, but you know, I, any any brain cycles is not good. But I don't know. I like I in high school, my my friends used to call me like uh, it. Uh, it was I don't know. Do, do you play ice hockey? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, they would call me like the agitator, the instigator, because it's sort of like my personality. It's like I would like you know, be the guy in, in hockey that would like start fights to defend the other thing. Uh, <laughs> there's like definitely something to that. I've definitely had to tone that down. I, I've toned it down as I've gotten older for sure. Um, but I'm also like, I, I played soccer as a, as a kid was my sport growing up. And you know, it's like a very much a team sport. So I've always been the person that's like willing to do the thing that is like harder, like the thing that other people on the team didn't want to do. Um, so like, that's sort of the way I think about it in Ethereum is like, I, sort of like try to figure out what other people aren't doing or don't want to do. And then I do that, whether I want to or not. <laughs> Usually I don't, but it is what it is. <laughs> Loses me friends, followers, whatever. But I, I think it's important. And I think, you know, this is the one thing I'm worrying in Ethereum is like becoming too adverse to argument. And it's, I think it's just arguing bluntly is not always bad. Or like, you know, not being too worried about stepping on people's toes. And, I, and I, I definitely value your voice in the space and everything you, you know, your contribution to the space. I'm, I'm super hyped and to hear that you are actually launching a staking pool. I think that's fantastic news. I, I, think, I think that's great. And uh, I guess thank you for taking the time. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time. And it, it's really been, it's really been pressure uh, and an honor, man, to have you. I apologize if my takes weren't spicy enough, especially about Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I, need, I, need to, I need to reset my baseline because I'm the, always the one who is like shitting on Bitcoin this most. And on that bombshell, we end the show. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at WEB3D3V and at GEWSTARR. Follow Mighty at Evan underscore Van underscore Ness. That's E V A N underscore V A N underscore N E S S underscore. Link will be in the show notes. And if you are not subscribed to his Week in Ethereum News newsletter, what are you even doing? We'll be eagerly awaiting Evan's staking service. Evan, Godspeed, sir. As always, all the links will be in the show notes. Ladies, gentlemen, DJs, and friends, thank you for tuning into this episode of the Web3 Trenches podcast. And until next time, keep digging deeper and deeper. And also that the Fed sees stable coins. Stable coins. The Fed sees stable coins. <laughs> Sorry. Like string theory type stuff here now. <laughs> no, no, like, no. You know, like, what, what is no. that? Schroeder's cat. Uh, Thing is alive and dead at the same time. Thank <laughs> you.